Yo, what's happening, lovely listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Into Deep. I'm your host, Jack Rowland. Today, I talk with Peter Heaven. Peter is a Raelian and the Australian spokesperson for the Raelian movement. What is the Raelian movement? Well, we'll get to that. But in short, the Raelian movement is a sect or a religion who believe not in God, but that we humans were created by aliens. The movement began with a French man called Claude Vorillon. After encountering a UFO landing, meeting with an alien, and being taken back to the alien's planet, Claude returned to Earth as Rael, or Maitreya Rael, the final prophet, with a message to humanity. A message of the origins of all life on Earth, and a message which all previous prophets, such as Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha, have tried to teach us. However, they got one key bit wrong. What they and many have interpreted as God is actually an alien race known as the Elohim, our creators. They have some pretty out there beliefs and ambitions, such as human cloning, building an alien embassy, and are very sex positive. But they've also initiated and got behind some pretty good social causes too, such as equality for women, support for gay and trans people, and a big emphasis on love and happiness. They have a controversial logo, which is the Star of David with a swastika inside of it, and they make an active effort to reclaim the swastika as a symbol of peace. I'm not going to lie, this is my kind of episode. Please welcome to the show, Peter Heaven. Is there a point to all this? I think we're getting in too deep. You don't apply. Bad luck. Well, I have one speed, I have one gear. Go, 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 Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I have been kind of looking into the Raelian movement uh, for the last week or so. Uh, I've, I've kind of known about it for a while, but I've really been uh, digging my teeth into the meat of it all, I guess, in the last um, week. Uh, I've got a lot of questions, and I have to say, there's a lot to like about it. Well... You and me the same. I mean, <laughs> I was introduced to it 30 years ago. Um, commonly, people would meet a Raelian or, you know, come across what we might call the messages, which is a series of books. Uh, I was given that first book written by Raelle uh, that was published in 74, and uh, I read it. In one sitting, it was just under 24 hours it took me. I'm not a particularly fast reader. And uh, I was absolutely uh, enthralled in what it said. And the rest, as some may say, is history. Right. Um, Mm. I I can imagine a lot of my listeners may have never heard of the Raelian movement. Um, Are you able to... Uh, who who are the Raelians and uh, or or what is the Raelian movement? Well, in a nutshell, as the story goes, in 1973, in fact, December 13, 1973, uh, a French gentleman, a journalist, uh, with a family, kids, uh, he had a magazine. He was living around Clermont-Ferrand, just sort of central France. Uh, on this fateful morning, early, went for a drive into the country to a place called Pure de la Salar, which is a series of extinct uh, volcanic craters. It's like a volcano park almost, very beautiful. And he went for a bit of a jog. It was winter time, quite cool in Europe at that time of year. And he was standing 
in the base of one of these craters and just before he was about to leave, he saw a bright flashing light in the sky. He watched this light, something that he describes looking like a flattened bell, silently descended. As it got closer, he realized he was looking at what we might all call a flying saucer or a UFO. He had a mix of emotions, of course, at that point. Uh, this craft continued to descend. It stopped hovering, you know, a few metres off the ground, about 10 metres away. And then the unbelievable happened, a, a, a type of stairway formed out of the bottom of a craft. And as uh, Rael says, uh, he first saw two feet, then two legs, then two hands, which uh, enthused him quite a bit because apparently he was going to meet a, a human being. And what he first thought was a child because of the stature of this being, about 1.2 metre, uh, effectively walked towards him and stopping about two metres away from him. And uh, Rael asked this small person, you know, what are you doing here? And this person answered, today I've come to, to meet with you. And over the next six consecutive days, roughly an hour per day, they met in the same place, same time, and this small person who introduced himself as Yahweh Elohim uh, dictated the contents of the, the first book that Rael the following year published in French, and uh, that book now has sold literal millions of copies. It's been translated into over 35 languages and is downloadable free at our website, rael.org. And the contents of this book and this meeting effectively explains the origins of all life on planet Earth, e.g. the Elohim, people just like us, far more scientifically advanced, um, were searching for a planet that would sustain life. They found Earth. It met all the criteria required. They set about creating the first single land mass. Once they'd achieved that, they filled the oceans with living organisms and uh, the land with living organisms, plants and animals. And when they had a biosphere that was self-sustaining, they created us in their image after our likeness, as is captured in many religious texts, including the Torah and, uh, and other sacred languages as well. Wow. Um, so that's, that's what the uh, Yahweh Elohim um, told Rael. Uh, so at this, at this point, his name was uh, Claude, Claude Vorhilon, uh, I believe. Vorilon. Vorilon. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. And from that point on, he was uh, named Rael. Um, so what exactly is the movement? Are you, do you guys um, think of yourself as a religion? I've, I've seen a lot of people refer to uh, the movement as a sect. Um, what, what is it in, in, your, in your eyes? Well, in my eyes, it's absolutely... A religion. In fact, it would be the quintessential religion as part of the message that Yahweh relayed to Rael in that first six days. It talks about the Elohim having created all life, creating us in their image, allowing us to be and multiply on the earth, sending what we might call prophets or messengers, uh, Elijah, Ezekiel, 
you know, Moses, Abraham, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, and many others over a large time frame, uh, just to give us information that would sort of head us in the right direction, if you like, promising that when we've reached uh, an age, perhaps the one we're in now where we could scientifically understand creation on this level as opposed to, you know, a, a more primitive quasi-spiritual level, uh, they would return, and they would return with all the prophets uh, on what would be perhaps one of the most fundamental days in, in human history. Right. So the previous prophets, as you said, Jesus, um, Moses, Buddha, they were all also prophets, I mean, uh, messengers from the Elohim, the alien race. Effectively, you could say that all the major religions are created by the Elohim. They were effectively just conduits of communication to varying people at, in varying epochs. It was never intended to be sort of pitting one religion against the other. In fact, I studied religion for many years before I came across the Raelian uh, information and had fairly well deduced from a lay perspective that all religions were connected, that it was a thread of information delivered over a long period of time um, and that they were not in any way uh, mutually exclusive. They were a, a continuum, if you like. And, you know, in the Quran itself, it says, you know, the, the prophets of Islam are Abraham, Moses, and it even mentions Jesus. So there's no ambiguity there. Hmm. And uh, certainly ancient text keeps referring to this thread. So it is a religion from the Latin religion, meaning link, whatever links us with our creators. Uh, this would be the quintessential one because it gives us an understanding of what happened. It gives us an insight into what may happen. It provides us with uh, a full understanding of why this creation took place, and it also gives us a philosophy to, to live by that uh, certainly in, in current times can be very helpful. Mm. Um, so who are the Elohim? Where are they from? What do they look like? So they're clearly human. Uh, as it states in the Torah or the first, uh, you know, the Old Testament of the Bible, um, clearly human in that they could have intercourse their their creation and 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 have children by them. So you know genetically we are compatible with them on that level. They came here as as people, psychologically mature people, t incredibly technically advanced people, and uh, they created life scientifically because they could. So they effectively come from the same galaxy that we come from. Um, we don't have any indication as to which um, star system within our galaxy they come from. Mm -hmm. uh, however, it is clear it's our galaxy. So they came here from another planet, planet very similar to ours, with a similar story. They were created by human beings long, long ago, who came to their planet, and because they could scientifically create life, they did. It seems to be a, a pattern here. They suggest that this process has been going on ad infinitum. So 
all life in the universe is created by other life and there's never been a beginning to this. This process has always existed. And they have high hopes that, you know, if we manage our own aggression and, and idiocracy, that uh, we too will develop the uh, scientific prowess to go off into the galaxy and create, <coughs> excuse me, life ourselves. So it's a process that's been in play for uh, for an infinite time frame. So that sort of puts an end to Big Bang theories. It puts an end to evolution. And uh, it unbelievably puts an end to the ethereal, omnipotent God story as well. So we like to call ourselves uh, atheistic creationists. So all life was created, but it wasn't an omnipotent ethereal style god that created the universe and created all life on planet earth it was people scientists from another planet who came to earth and created life because they could and uh, we are the result and everything we see around us is the result so i'm a bit confused about the no origin kind of infinite cycle so i guess for that to kind of make sense humans have always been uh, and I guess you'd almost kind of have to reimagine the entire concept of time itself. Is this kind of like cyclical time? It's interesting that you, you put it like that. I've been looking into physics and quantum physics, and believe it or not, the classic Big Bang theory of a minute particle with infinite sort of potential exploding and what we're witnessing is the expansion of the galaxy as everything moves away from a central point was quaint. It just doesn't add up. It do you can't have a central point of an infinite space and we can now see that there are galaxies, there are clusters of galaxies, there are clusters and clusters of uh, clusters of galaxies and you know, this is where science is up to. So the whole notion of a beginning doesn't actually add up. If we look at physics on a true level, everything exists, always has exists, and it's in a constant state of change from matter to energy and back again. It's very difficult for a human being who has a sort of finite mindset that everything they have, own, touch, eat, uh, their, their own being themselves, you know, came into being at one stage and, and at another stage will will sort of meet some sort of final cataclysm. You know, everything seems to degrade. But uh, the truth is it's always been like this. This is the infinite notion that's discussed well in the message, the infinitely small, the atoms that make us up, the subatomic particles. There is no God particle that they keep looking for with headlong colliders you just find another smaller <clears throat> particle and that smaller particle can be divided. Same when you look up at night. You're looking at an infinite cosmos that just keeps on growing on an infinite level. And uh, at first blush, it's a little difficult to swallow. But once that penny drops, it clearly can't be anything else. In fact, it, it makes the whole notion of a big bang really quite juvenile. So in, infinity is kind of quite central to the understanding of the universe in the Raelian's uh, outlook. Well, it's, it's, it's central to the fabric of everything. 
Right. The infinitely large, infinitely small, everything is made up of smaller particles. It's just that there's no base particle which no longer can be divided. I mean, whatever particle our technology allows to see and witness um, can be divided, and this process will just continue. There's no opportunity to end up with a particle and say, ha-ha, this is it, this is the smallest particle that makes up everything, and it's undividable or mm. indivisible. It's, uh, it's a notion that just doesn't wash. So what are humans? Well, that is a fabulous question. We are a very beautiful, powerful, creative entity, depending on how you look at it. We are the infinite itself having found a way to become self-aware. We are an expression of the creative prowess of another human race. We have been created. I mean, you know, if we look at our own neurobiology it's becoming quite clear when people say, what's the point, uh, why, um, that why would be to, you know, live, to be alive and to be happy. It's it's quite interesting to see the neural pathways and how a human being operates with its uh, senses and so forth that effectively we've been designed for pleasure. We've been designed to enjoy. We've been designed to to be creative, to laugh, to to wonder, to, you know, be happy. It's very much what everything in nature is leaning towards, that there's this uh, ambience of, of joy and happiness at the hub of, of life. So, um, so kind of gives it. Sorry, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that we've been designed for happiness and, and things like that. I mean, that, again, kind of implies that there's a designer. Um, I know you've kind of mentioned that we've been created by uh, humans from another planet. They've been created from humans uh, possibly more advanced than them, and that kind of continues. But how far back does that go to the origin of intelligent life as we know it? So effectively, we have infinity, and it's a little difficult or challenging for some uh, people to get their heads around infinity because effectively we've been conditioned and we've been conditioned with our entire lives with everything being finite. You know, one day we're born and then we live and then we die and, you know, we might buy a pet and there it is, it has a beginning, it, it lives and then it dies, you know, things get old and fall apart and everything seems to have a cycle which has a beginning, a middle and an end type of thing. So we tend to view everything from this perception base, including our scientists, and that's why the Big Bang is such an attractive uh, theory, and it is still a theory, because it's you have nothing, then you have this almighty big bang, and then you have everything. And that means you've got a beginning point. And, uh, you know, certain elements of physics, certainly quantum physics, are starting to challenge all of these notions, which is very interesting because Rael was really discussing this in detail back in 1975. Of course, people were dismissing him out of hand. But there's two elements to this question that need to be understood, and that's the infinite reality or the infinity of space 
So when you look out at night at those stars, that effectively goes on forever. It doesn't end in a brick wall. If it did, then how thick's the brick wall and what's on the other side of it? It just goes on forever. And the infinitely small, when we look at the atoms in our hand that make up the molecules that make up the cells of, say, our hand, well, you don't get down to the God particle, that brick that sort of builds everything, because if you did find that, well, you could divide that. You could cut it in half, literally. And this goes on ad infinitum. And what is really startling is when you look at the fabric of the universe and you look out at night at the stars and you understand sort of a bit of celestial mechanics and, you know, our galaxy and clusters of galaxies and so forth, what you're really looking at is the inside of the particles that make up the particles or subatomic particles that make up atoms of something greater. Now, that could be a tree, it could be a rock, it could be a human being who is also under a starlit night ad infinitum. And the same when we look at our own cells made up of uh, molecules which are made up of atoms, which are made up of subatomic particles, one day we'll have the technology to realise when we look at those subatomic particles, we're actually looking at galaxies, clusters of galaxies, and those galaxies have suns with planets around them, and those planets will have sentient life on them, whether that life is human or uh, comes in some other form. It's certainly conscious, it's awake, and it's understanding its environment. So that's the infinity in space, if we like. Infinity in time is a little more difficult to for people to comprehend because getting back to that conditioning, we start things, we stop things, things have a beginning, but things have an end. To think that this has literally been going on without a beginning is challenging and difficult for some to, to sort of conceive. However, we're starting to get quantum physicists and other great minds in the physics circles who are saying, well, you know, when you think about it, there could never have been a beginning to time and there could never have been a beginning to what we might call the universe and the fabric of all matter and energy within that universe because if we look at what makes all of this matter and energy, which is in a constant state of flux, matter becoming energy and energy becoming matter, you technically can't have a beginning point in all that. So within this infinite realm, you have, and it was put to me nicely by Maitreya, he said, it's as if the, the universe, the infinite, the infinitely large and the infinitely small, came up with a way of becoming self-conscious itself. So sentient life, life which is conscious, life which is self-aware, life that can create life in this part of the universe, it's, it's humanoid form, but it doesn't have to be, has always existed. And it is just an infinite succession of sentient life reaching a technologically advanced state where they can go off into the cosmos and create life because Reprocreation is, is such a powerful driver and instinct, you know, the human being can create, be it art, be it a building, be it another life form, they will. And, um, and this has been going on ad infinitum. So those who created us, who we call the Elohim, were created in exactly the same way, advanced humans from another part of our uh, galaxy, finding their planet and creating them in, in the image of their creators. In fact, they have had contact uh, in a certain way with their uh, 
creators and it was explained to them that they had been created in exactly the same way and uh, there was never a beginning point at all. Right. So I guess what you're saying is life is an essential ingredient of uh, the universe itself. You know, there's like, I guess, time, space and life is, is very much like embedded in in the makeup of that but you know you can still have finite things within an infinite model for instance if if something like all the animals for example example on earth or insects if they were created by the elohim um there is a beginning to that species there is a a very like uh, identifiable time within this infinite model where that began and those life beings are far less self-aware and conscious so so even within that i guess i struggle with them there must have been uh is is there any kind of conception of the original um intelligent self-aware creators were they always human were they have, have we evolved in from many different forms in this process or is it just unknowable? It's very interesting to put it like that. On some level, it's unknowable, and on the other level, it's self-apparent. And and, and it was just so beautiful how you mentioned it at the beginning uh, of your last um, contribution by saying that, you know, yes, so the infinite, the infinite cosmos, the infinitely large and the infinitely small. In fact, that's what that emblem, you would have come across the emblem effectively the Star of David with a swastika uh, entwined in it, and you can you can sort of trace your finger around it. And that emblem, which some would argue is the oldest uh, symbology on planet Earth, it is the emblem that, that reveals the infinitely large, the cosmos when we look up, that goes on ad infinitum, the infinitely small, you know, the particles that make us up ad infinitum, are entwined and cyclic and interacting with each other. You know, energy and matter, that's where the physicists come into it. They realise nothing is lost, nothing is gained. It's just in a constant state of flux. So you just can't have a beginning to such a thing. So this notion that you've already proposed, that you, the universe in of itself, it was inevitable that it would... Um, be self-aware, and that self-aware element of the infinite is us in this neck of the woods. If we were to, you know, vault a billion trillion light years in another direction, the 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 mean sentient life form might look very different. You know, I mean, we could only guess, but it could be crab-like or spider-like or, sure. or gotcha. goodness knows what like. But it would be as aware and as capable as we are from a, a psychological, neurological perspective. And you're right that insects, you know, when we when we look at nature for Aurelian, we look at a beautiful flower and its perfume and its colours, that was created by an artist. So you had scientific teams develop life on planet Earth. So the scientists would contribute the how, as in the, the molecular structure, the manipulation of, of, of DNA, the manipulation of matter, indeed. But then they were working with artists who'd say, well, why not make it this colour or why not make it smell like that? I mean, you look at some of the creation, it's a little bit overboard, you know. Like look at a peacock. It, it has trouble flying because clearly the artists <laughs> put a lot of pressure on the scientists to sort of take it to the next level and just create living art for no other reason than 
happiness, enjoyment, you know, pleasure. And uh, is that the first peacock to ever be created or first bird that it looks like that to ever be created? And this is where it becomes a bit of a mind twist and we lose most of the audience. The way it's been explained to me and the way I am still developing a, a good appreciation of is when you have an infinite playing field, then you have a 100% chance of everything that could conceivably happen, happen an infinitely number of times. So there are an infinite number of versions of me on an infinite number of planets, you know, exactly or similar to planet Earth and an infinite number of versions of me making all the infinite possible choices um, that a person could make. Now, that's me. So that's also including an ant or a peacock or anything else that could be created. So this is where the appreciation of what it means when you're dealing with infinite possibility, it really means that. There, there is no limit. And uh, this has been going on for an infinite time frame and will indeed go on for an infinite time frame. In fact, you can't destroy infinite uh, infinity in any way, shape or form. You can have little localised sort of happenings, but it's, uh, it's not a major deal. Mm. So are we, are we born, are we the children of these outside uh, alien humans or are we clone replicas of these alien humans because you said we were created? Yeah, well, that's a really good question from a historical point of view. So the Elohim found Earth, created the first landmass. They then you know, built laboratories, for want of another terminology, on that single landmass, went about creating all life and then creating us in their image. Uh, you could suggest that the first humans created by them in those labs were, in fact, clones, clones of themselves, not individual clones, but the the design um, was a clone of themselves. They could then mate with those clones, and from them you had real-born children. So you could say that humanity down the track this far, so many multiples of generations, is a combination of those originally created human beings and then um, indeed the children that were born of the union between Elohim and uh, their created. And um, and here we are so many generations later. So, mm. I mean, I, I love these kind of ideas. I, I also love science fiction. Um, probably in the last few years I've really was watching a lot of science fiction actually. And, um, you know, like there, there's uh, – I know this uh, – the Rayleigh movement's been around for many, many years. But, you know, there's a recent film called um, – Oh, what's the Ridley Scott one? Um, kind of the prequel to the Alien series, uh, Prometheus. And that's kind of got a similar um, theme of we were actually created. The, the origin story is, is created. I also love thinking about, um, you know, artificial intelligence and, and what, are, what are we going to create? The, the human story as it seems, whether it be cloning, whether it be uh, trying to replicate consciousness in an AI form, um, there most likely will be something else that we are going to leave behind that may actually outlive us. It's highly possible. Like they're all really uh, fascinating ideas. Um, and yeah, especially like 
if you look at people like Elon Musk and what they're kind of doing or, or yeah, a lot of AI um, programmers and stuff, it's, it's not as science fiction as uh, it, it once was anymore. So I guess um, with Rael's message, with this story uh, or origin story that you've kind of outlined that's been outlined by Rael from the Elohim, what, uh, 30 years ago when you read this, what, what part of this made you convinced that this was true? Well, you know, that, there, there's a long version of that, which uh, some people who come for dinner have been uh, privy to. I'll give you the short version. I had become rather obsessed with the discovery of the truth as I saw it. Um, I'm very sort of on a lay basis. I don't in any way pretend to be an expert at anything, but I have a sort of uh, an interest, let's say, in deducing truth and outcomes and, and you know, finding that which is real in life. And uh, I found it odd going to school that, you know, you had science and evolution taught as if it was fact, you had religion taught as if it was fact, and, you know, roughly half the faculty were leaning one way or the other. So I decided to find out for myself. I started with science for me. Um, I found that evolution broke down dramatically on a number of levels. I think that's been uh, all but proven now with uh, irreducible complexity and, you know, how do you actually start that sort of a complex cellular process? So it left religion, and the more I looked into religion and I really got involved, I started to see that I was I was researching scientific books. They, they weren't just old letters or old books or, or notions or ideas, that there was a formula here. There, there was um, true science being spoken about. There was this, this massive event that had occurred. And then once I started to tie religions together, I became quite uh, convinced that it was a, a lineal thread of information and that it was discussing people from another planet coming here who created life scientifically. So, you know, this is around the time von Daniken uh, hit the, the, the markets and uh, we've had, you know, Zachariah Sitchin sort of contribute to that space and the whole astronaut gods sort of theory was big in the 70s when and 80s when I was sort of really getting into this. And so by the time I read the messages, I was a prime candidate for um, – Wow, well, you know, this is it. This this makes complete sense. And I do recall, you know, Jesus himself talking about, uh, you know, asking his father Yahweh to send an advocate or another messenger um, at a time when we could understand as opposed to just believe. So I was actually eyes open and ears acutely tuned looking for who would fit that bill, who would be the advocate that Jesus spoke about, who would be that new Maitreya that Buddha spoke about, who would be the Midi that, you know, the followers of Islam are waiting for. Um, there had to be someone because I certainly believed in those religions. And uh, when Maitreya came along with his book or Rael came along with his book, and uh, I read that some years later, it, it ticked all the boxes for me. Hmm. 
well. <clears throat> so in this model, I mean, we've kind of gone over this a little bit, but so I guess evolution does not exist, correct? Evolution the way Lamarck or, or Darwin postulated it, absolutely not. Right. Evolution in regards to a genetic sense, well, I think we've all experienced that. We've all seen how, um, you know, bird breeding or, mm. or, or dog breeding or horse breeding or cattle breeding um, in effect is a, a type of evolution. I know my wife and I have a garden and, and we're up to so many generations of the same tomato seed and we can see each time that seed imparts greater prowess in this environment, the weather, the soil type, the moisture, etc. So each generation gets a little stronger uh, in this environment. So that's a form of evolution, but not to be confused with what, what Darwin was in any way suggesting. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around. So, you know, it seems your organizational movement is, is very kind of science-based, which I'm, we'll get into more of that. As, as we talk, I'm sure um, there's a lot, yeah, a lot to cover. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm also just kind of trying to get my head around, uh, you know, certain sciences seem to be just kind of rejected by, by the movement. As such, as an example? Hmm. Um, it, yeah, I mean, that, that to me, I, I, get, I guess I find it a little hard to get my head around the selectivity of, 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 of the sciences there. When you say rejected as in Darwin's evolutionary theory. Darwin's evolutionary theory, the Big Bang theory, as we've, as we've covered already, things like that. It's interesting. I was, I was, I was watching a fab documentary the other day and um, a John Haglin, probably one of the world's greatest physicists said, you know, as we go back in time, we see how people, indeed whole cultures, um, were seduced by belief systems and assumptions and paradigms, and that in almost every case, these assumptions and paradigms were proved to be wrong. So all the scientists in Europe uh, not that long ago were conducting scientific experiments to prove that the Earth was flat just turned out to be spherical. Mm, sure. Yeah. Um, so just because someone, you know, comes up with an assumptive paradigm, e.g. the Big Bang Theory or e.g. evolutionary theory, I'm happy to correctly call them theories because that's literally all they are, that's all they ever have been, that's completely fine and, and creative people will always continue to hypothesize and theorize and that's part of the discovery process but we do need to get to a point where we start to say you know what we now have new understanding we have greater technology that allows us to realize that that theory no longer works so it's not a cherry picking of science it's just a natural evolution of the discovery process and as new technologies come along uh, certain old assumptions need to be put to rest. Hmm. With with Rael's um, message and his books and and the the story of the Elohim coming down um, and and uh, speaking with him and and everything, is there any um, is there any kind of uh, more proof that um, that the organisation is aware of? Have there been other members that have been in contact with the Elohim? Has there 
has there been is there any kind of is there is there anything uh, more than than the story that you're asking fabulous questions jack it would depend on on which Raelian you spoke to so just mm. like the general population um i know of many Raelians who've say witnessed something which could be attributed to being a UFO to use sort of common uh, terminology. That yeah, day. I mean we're getting lots of um, government verified footage at the American military footage that's being released <laughs> lately, right? The Tic Tac well, UFO and all that. I know that my own journey took me backwards in time. I, I wasn't really so interested in abduction stories or the latest UFO sighting almost inevitably in the US. But when I go back in time and I look at Verde and Gelder and these famous artists over the last sort of 600 years, you know, painting the most exquisite paintings, almost always with a religious twist, be it the, the baptism of Christ or uh, paintings of Mary Magdalene. And, and up in the sky you have, which everyone in the room would suggest is a UFO. In fact, we can go back a thousand years and there's paintings of, of Christ on the cross and up in the sky there are literal flying machines with men literally in them. And I say to people, you know, this is an abstract art. This is before photographics. This is before video. This is a documentation of something that occurred. This person hasn't suddenly just gone, hey, you know, I'm going to paint uh, a spaceship with someone sitting in the spaceship with controls in their hands, they're just replicating a, a witnessed event. So whether it's current times or recent times or historic times, there's more than enough information, documentation on so many levels of, you know, fiery chariots, magic carpets, you know, the list just goes on and on and on of uh, clearly people coming here in forms of transport from elsewhere in the cosmos. So, you know, we're living in exciting times indeed. In fact, the Raelian movement hopes to build an embassy that would be the most obvious and official place for any extraterrestrials to actually make contact with them. Because at the moment, if they are there, where are they going to land? If they land en masse, it could be seen as an invasion. If they land in one country, they could be seen to support that country's ideals or political structure or whatever. But if we have a true embassy with all the extraterritorial rights that any embassy enjoys and, uh, you know, a, a demilitarized airspace above it, well, that would be sending a signal that we've matured to the point where we are openly inviting engagement. Keep in mind these people, be it the Elohim or any of the other infinite beings in our section of the cosmos, uh, they're far more psychologically advanced than we are. So they're only coming if they're invited. Hmm. And uh, we haven't actually given them an invitation yet. Right. Why, um, why Rael? Was he at the right place at the right time or was he selected were they keeping an eye on this on this man until the time was right why 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 rael it would seem when one looks at those who we call now contactees that uh the plan was afoot 
long ago. I mean, they have been monitoring us, that is human development, since they left. They have kept in touch with us with, with messengers or prophets over that time. Some of those prophets were literal contactees who, um, you know, had probably been followed all their lives and nurtured to a certain extent to be able to manage this type of a role. Others were literally parented by them. Uh, we have the example of, of Jesus where, you know, his mother was of earth and his father was an Eloha. And uh, right from the get-go, that was a deliberate uh, intervention, if you like, that was creating a specific person who would then go on to you know, really have a pivotal role in, in humanity's direction. So it's the same with Rael. From uh, birth, as they say, and even before birth, they had a plan for him to be the final prophet or the final messenger, if you like. Hmm. You've uh, you've spent time with Rael? Have indeed. What a privilege, yes. He's come, been to Australia a number of times, and uh, I've also been to Japan uh, a couple of times, and uh, I've enjoyed him in his seminars. The people come from all over the world, of course, and that's a treat. It's, it can be sort of anywhere from four days up to nine days, and uh, he spends hours on stage every day. So you really get a, a good feel for the man. I've also been lucky enough to be invited out uh, for dinner. Uh, to sort of see a, a more, um, what can I say, humanesque side of the man. So yeah, I've, I've I've been looking for little cracks in the in the <laughs> in, in his uh, story for thirty years. I mean, not deliberately because there's doubt, but I I, I work in psychologies myself, and uh, I'm always interested in 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 language use and and how someone presents and. Um, well, he's never failed to impress me. What's he like? He's a French man. That should say a lot. I'm, I'm married <laughs> to a French woman. I know the French rather well. I, I have some very, very close and dear French friends. But um, I think what really pleased me most is that he's just like you and I, Jack. You know, he's he, he doesn't pretend to be special. He doesn't pretend to be you know, like a Buddhist monk and uh, he can have his opinions and he can, you know, get upset about things just like the rest of us. He, he It's it's rather refreshing. We're talking about a, a human being who's been given an almost unenviable task, as huge as it's been. He's done a great job. But um, if you get him going on one of his passions, which is motor racing, it's a passion that I share. I mean, we could talk all night on that subject. Uh, he loves music. He's quite a uh, consummate musician himself. So there's another subject that he's he's um, able to chat all night about. Um, and he loves his food, as most French men do, and his women, for that matter. Mm. Great. So he, so yeah, sorry, just kind of back to what you were saying about, you know, kind of comparing him to like Jesus. So he, he is, he is half Elohim, he is directly half Elohim where the rest of us are not. Is that correct? We're kind of, we are repeating the cycle of, of birth here on earth with the 
implantation of the human race, but but Rael is different. He is half the 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 Earth human and half the uh, the Elohim or humans from the sky. Is that correct? Well, that's what uh, Yahweh Elohim explained in those first six days. That at the end of the day. Well, actually, no, it was in the second encounter. So that opens up a whole new pathway of uh, observation. That happened in 1975. But uh, it was explained to Rael that uh, his mother, that's Rael's mother, um, was artificially impregnated, for a more correct term, just like Jesus's mother was, and as a result gave birth to a child. The same story could be said for Krishna in that matter. Mm. And, uh, so yeah, he is a direct result of a union between the Elohim and uh, humanity. Mm. Um, so I really hope you don't think this is uh, in, in any way... Uh, uh, rude, um, but you know there, there's been a lot of false prophets. There's been a lot of um, cults. There's been a lot of groups. Some that have ended really, really badly. Um, not, uh, but you know that I've I've been looking into uh, the um, the Raelian movement, and everyone seems pretty bloody happy. <laughs> like, they, they, and and there's a, a lot of kind of very interesting. So I mean. Look, to be completely honest, part part of me approaches this very skeptically um, and worry about the kind of hierarchical nature of, of one uh, leader, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I've also, you, you start looking into some of the causes um, and and things that you that the, the movement's kind of involved in. And you guys have actually done quite a lot of good for the world, it seems. Um which is also very refreshing. Um, you've, you, the group seems to have some very uh, liberate, liberated um, ideas towards sex and sexuality and even things like gender diversity, um, done some, some good social causes and things. And, and yeah, and, and they're, um, am I correct in saying like there's no kind of compulsive, like you're free to leave and everything, right? Absolutely, free to leave, free to join, free to, to think for yourself, free to question. Um, you know, freedom and happiness tend to go hand in hand. Uh, the, the philosophy, not just the Raelian philosophy, but if we have a look at Elohim's work over the, uh, you know, multitude of millennia, and really look at it for what it is and the people it was designed for, the particular epoch, it's, it's always been a liberation. It's always been a thing of, of beauty and love and understanding and so forth. So Raelianism works because of the freedom of the mind, freedom of the body. You know, no one is expected uh, to be a particular way uh, in any way, shape, or form. And indeed, you know, people come and be part of the structure for many years, for many years and they come back for many years. And uh, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a living organism, the structure itself. Keep in mind that it's possible to be Aurelian. It's possible to have Aurelian baptism 
and live as Aurelian but not be part of the structure. So it's only a small number of people who actually get involved with what we've been calling the Aurelian movement, which is a, a genuine structure. And the people who get involved with the movement would end up finding a, a, a a place within that movement that they can be useful. And like any structure, we, we busy ourselves with the dissemination of the messages. That's probably our core goal. Um, the uh, hopeful building of the embassy we discussed a little while ago. And then uh, within that structure, there have been um, ideas of getting involved in in sort of charitable style work, which we feel is aligned with the philosophy. Um, but it's possible also to be Aurelian, to be a baptised Aurelian and not be part of the structure at all and just live your life uh, as you may wish. How many people are in the uh, organisation or the, stru- the structure, the work, working Aurelians for the, for the movement? Look, that's a good question. I don't know the number. I would say, you know, currently, you know, somewhere in the order of three or four thousand. Hmm. Okay. Great. Um. So yeah, uh, kind of uh, back to kind of what I was saying. Like, from what I can kind of see, from what the videos I've watched, some of the I've listened to some kind of like uh, lectures or, or sermons from from Rael and. And kind of just observed um, the general followers through video and and things like that, and you yeah, they, they seem pretty happy. What what makes what makes you uh, you lot so happy? What what are some of the values that uh, <laughs> that Raelians well, promote that um that kind of you know seems to fulfil? It's it's interesting you put it like that because each year on every continent and have done since the beginning. Uh, we have what we call the Happiness Academy. So you could say we're all graduates of successive happiness academies. And at these happiness academies that uh, more recently have been online for obvious reasons, but, you know, back in the day they were two weeks long, then they sort of, uh, you know, got shortened to about nine days. And then in some places it might be a sort of a long weekend, but either which way, Raelians would get together and um, not only would we enjoy the sort of fraternity of each other, but there would be daily um, presentations. Now, many of those presentations were done by Rael himself or are done by Rael himself. If you go to somewhere like Japan, you see him in the flesh. If you're in Australia, we would be watching a video of what was actually shot in Japan, um, although Rael has come here a number of times and and done the presentations himself in the flesh. But we also have other experts. I mean, within the movement, we have many scientists, we have many psychologists, we have neurologists and biologists, etc. And the, the main emphasis of the Happiness Academy is to really discover how we are wired and how to make the most of, of joy and happiness and make the distinction between the two and really via the philosophy become wary of the distractions of life and the that which can sort of make someone rather remote or anxious or depressed. There's certainly no shortage of things on planet Earth that could do that if you allowed it. Uh, so to view things uh, from a different perspective, which tends to draw out and nurture the best in everyone, the best in everything, and the best in every moment. So what you're witnessing are people 
who have just been practicing that which has been taught at the happiness academies. Are there any um, practices or rules that that are, are taught or adhered to in order to uh, be in line with the Raelian movement's outlook and to achieve happiness? Sure. The 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 only rule that. I'm aware of is is purely respect. In fact, if we really think about that, if we respect ourselves and respect each other, you kind of don't need any other rules. And um, respect is 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 an absolute must. And and you know we're we're you know implicitly non-violent, and that non-violence is is not just physical violence, but you know expressed aggression and so forth. So between that and 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 respect, it it, it makes for a, a a beautiful environment. Great, I can't argue with that. <laughs> um, can I? Uh, let's talk about let's talk about sex, Peter. Um, <laughs> there seems to be a a, a a lot a lot a lot of the different um, angles that I kind of look at. There there does seem to be this sexual liberated and and somewhat emphasis on 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 sex within within the group. Is that fair to say? It's very funny, and we do laugh about this a lot. I mean, I've been to in numerous happiness academies, mm-hmm. uh, not just in Australia but around the world. I've been involved for 30 years, and um, I can honestly say I've not seen any overt sexual behavior that I haven't seen in any other healthy environment for that matter. Uh, I know we support um, really any nuance of, of sexual taste, and as part of that, we for many years actually had a float in the, um, the Mardi Gras on Oxford Street in Australia, the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. And uh, wow. I, I found it just... So amazing to see, you know, hundreds of thousands, not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people come together and and enjoy sensuality and sexuality. So it's not just a Raelian thing. Um, I've never been to an orgy within a Raelian, you know, event. I've never even witnessed such a thing. What we have is is a teaching which says, you know, with your own body, and with other consenting people, you know, it's, it's, no one can frown upon what it is you may wish to do as, as long as there's respect and everyone's consenting and, and no one's hurt or nothing is hurt in the process, well, then who is anyone to to judge? And I think there's a healthy reality to have that as part of a robust and powerful philosophy, but there's no have-tos. I, right. I have enjoyed a probably a fairly, what can I say, uh, straight and <laughs> normal sexual life. Uh, I enjoy sex, but I'm not, uh, you know, um, I haven't felt the need to sort of uh, go out and experiment. Uh, I have friends who have, and for them it's been exceedingly liberating, and perhaps if it wasn't for the the movement and the philosophy, they've never... They may never have experienced that side of them, which has sort of uh, opened new pathways of, of, of joy and happiness again. 
So it's part of our philosophy. It's not a it's not a part of our sort of um, sociality by default. Let's say right. But there is kind of like, I mean, you mentioned before, you know, happiness and pleasure. Like I've even heard uh, Rael talk uh, quite, quite, quite a bit about, you know, pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing. A lot of other religions um, shy away from pleasure. They really, sh- they kind of almost shut the door on it. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, uh, avoid temptation is, is a common one uh, in various religions or various forms of, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> organized religion i guess um that seems to be there does seem to be a kind of uh vocal element to rejecting that and um and it has been uh, also kind of reflected in also yeah big big actual commend the the organization that you guys seem to have been pro-gay pro-trans just there's zero problem with whatever gender you identify with or any of that for before before it was trendy right Long before it was trendy. In <laughs> fact, um, <clears throat> I recall quite fondly many, many years ago when we used to have the longer version of the Happiness Academy, which was, you know, two weeks long. We'd, we'd, we'd hire a, you know, a, a hotel or we'd hire a, a particular place to hold an event and that place would be uh, a sort of a, a closed group. Could be a um, what can I say? A, a, a type of event, um, a, a purpose-built event place up in the up in the mountains, let's say, where you had accommodation, you had a dining room, you had a hall, and it would be closed off, so okay. it wouldn't be open to the public, hmm. etc. And um, I remember it. Uh, the the experience that I had anyway and the experience I observed in others. So for one whole day out of this day of, of uh, two weeks, for one whole day, all the m- gender males, regardless of whether they were gay or not, would wear women's clothing if they weren't already. And all the women, gender women, regardless of their sexual orientation, would wear men's clothing, but it went a lot deeper. You would feign or, or act out a female stereotype if you were a male, and if you were a female, you would feign or act out a, 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 a male stereotype. <clears throat> and at first I didn't quite get it, perhaps. I was a much younger man, but it was fun. But after doing it a few times, I really started to see what the point was. It was about perspective. It was about standing in someone else's shoes. It was about, you know, really having an attempt at, at imagining life from a, a different perspective. And uh, I found that really interesting. In fact, the last few times I did it, I, I benefited so greatly. It, it gave me such a, a powerful understanding of um, how I perceived women to be to perhaps how they really are. I don't claim to be an expert on women by any stretch, but it was a a revealing exercise. And um, all along, I mean, going back 30 years, you know, I have met people 
um, almost that long ago who had gone through, you know, gender reassignment surgery back before you'd ever even heard of the phrase and were living their life very insulated because of the choices they'd made and then they discover the Raelian movement and suddenly there's a whole world of people. They can travel around the world and be the person they really felt they were. And that is enough. I feel a bit emotional just saying it. One person in particular comes to mind and just to see her her, her blossoming because of this is, you know, it, it makes it all so worthwhile. Mm. Um, the organisation, the, the movement's also done a, ve- a number of demonstrations and kind of advocating for equal rights for women. Uh, Go topless. That was a big campaign that you guys were doing, where women would um, demonstrate, parade. Not not really a protest, maybe a pro. I don't know. Protest, a demonstration, uh, and everyone would, um, all women would have their boobs out in the streets. Um, can you tell us about that? What, why 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 that was. What was the purpose of, of this demonstration? Look, I think it's very interesting, especially considering where we're at uh, with the now fluidity of gender and the science that backs it. I, I know someone born a man, um, you know, seemed to flux in and out of being male, um, very interestingly, took some medication, nothing too invasive, nothing too heavy, and lo and behold, his breasts grew, you know. They had breasts like a woman just from taking tablets, you know. And uh, I looked into this, and it can actually become a lactating breast. Hmm. So I guess the absurdity is we're all so similar, men and women, to the tune that if we just make a hormonal adjustment in a man, they will grow breasts and those breasts can actually lactate. I mean, this was this was uh, mind-numbing for me when I, I, I discovered this and realised this. And so the absurdity is why can a man in most places walk around with his shirt off and a woman not, seeing we both have mammary glands, and that's the truth. Mm. We both have breasts, just some are are larger and more functional than others. There's plenty of women who have very petite, even no breasts at all, but they're not allowed to take their top off, even though their, their chest would look very much like any other man's. So this this absurdity is, is just part of the suppression that women have had to endure forever. It wasn't that long ago in certain cultures they were wearing, you know, corsets or chastity belts or weren't allowed to wear pants or sit, you know, astride on a horse. So, you know, in many cultures the females have been unfortunately and absolutely moronically and unjustly suppressed. Mm. So this action is to say, hey, what's this fuss all about anyway? And, uh, you know, especially America comes to mind. My sister, who's also part of the, the Raelian movement, was very much involved with the uh, the liberation of the, the female breasts in the U.S. And, you know, some great footage, you know, when you, when you, when you end up with 50 women with all their tops off on a beautiful sunny day, What's anyone going to do about that? I mean, what are we talking about? This is this is nothing but normal, beautiful, 
uh, you know, freedom to be allowed to do with my body as I, I wish, especially seeing all the men here are allowed to walk around with their tops off. So um, it was really just pointing out how, you know, ridiculous the laws are. Here we have, you know, we're sending technology out of our own solar system. We can split the atom. We've now got nanotechnology. We've got cloning. We can do all these amazing things. But, you know, a woman on the Gold Coast in one of the sunniest countries in the world has to wear a thin little bit of material over her nipples or she'll be arrested. I mean, it's just bizarro. No, I'm on board. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, another another cause that um, I found extremely uh, interesting and kind of blew my mind was uh, Clitorade. So, um, yeah, can you tell me about Clitorade? I certainly can. For many a year, my wonderful partner in life was the president of Clitorade in Australia. So, uh, Rael, or Maitreya as we call him, mm-hmm. keep in mind that he's a manifestation of a, a number of uh, expected prophets in this time, um, like we all became, was appalled at the whole notion of, of female circumcision. Now, I won't go into detail because it's it's just horrific and uh, those of who are listening who want to you know do some investigation prepare yourself it's it's if you know nothing about it you will be horrified but effectively in some parts of the world this is nothing to do with even really culture or religion it's just some as it turns out barbaric practice that seemed to have come along without any real rhyme or reason other than more suppression of women by men, where, you know, from a baby really just a few months old up until possibly the age of of, uh, just before puberty, um, a woman could be literally physically held down and uh, in many cases with not-so-sterile implements have much of her out of vagina removed brutally uh, and then stitched up. And, of course, this was to secure some form of chastity and that that would be sort of undone by her husband at a later stage. Now, I've looked well into this. What is the origin of this mad barbaric practice? Um, It doesn't come from a religion. And uh, when you see it's practiced in many places around the world, it's not one particular culture or race that, uh, you know, started this off. It's just mind-numbingly horrific. And so as, uh, you know, this subject, it was decided that we could do something about it because we were a global organisation. We were based in in dozens of countries. We did have thousands of people who would uh, come to the cause. And, um, you know, I I know in Australia, and I mentioned my wife and other radians here who participated in this, the Sexpo organisation which uh, annually has big sexpo conventions. They were very generous and would give Clitorade a space there for free. And, you know, tens of thousands of dollars were raised 
uh, awareness was created, education was offered, and uh, that money then went to uh, build a hospital in Africa in uh, Burkina Faso. I think I've pronounced that right. And uh, a brilliant American surgeon had discovered, quite amazingly, that even as brutal as this circumcision was, that a new surgery could be performed to undo all the damage, that the clitoris that had been cut off and the, the libia or so forth that had been removed could actually be uh, regenerated and that, that woman could go on to have a, a, a normal functioning organ and therefore, in many cases, for the first time, actually enjoy uh, pleasure. I mean, clearly, sexual pleasure is pleasurable. I think most people would agree with that. And it's pleasurable for a reason. It was designed like that. So to rob someone of that for a life is is tragic. To be able to give it back is something. And that's what Glitterade was all about. And of course, education to stop it from happening. And there's been huge ground uh, made in, in Africa in particular uh, about changing the mindset of those that would perpetrate these crimes. How do you restore a clitoris that's been removed? Very, very interesting question, and I must admit, I'm I'm all I'm all all open to to discovery. But as it turns out, the um, the clitoris itself is 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 a rather large organ, and and anyone who understands or has female anatomy would be used to a very tiny bit of that clitoris protruding. And, uh, of course, it's very highly sensitive and can be stimulated. But beneath that, you have a continuation of the organ. So the, the brutal butcher who might cut that off, thinking that somehow they had done permanent damage, uh, obviously doesn't understand biology. So what can happen is the, 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 the rest of the clitoris, which lies beneath, can be surgically repositioned, if you like, to form a a, a new perfectly functional and normal-looking clitoris uh, back where it should be. Um, These surgeries were free, correct? Absolutely free. They were paid for. Uh, Many of the people involved, doctors and nurses, actually gave their own time for free. The hospital had to be built. There was an expense in that. There was an expense in equipment and so forth. And all of that was um, purely supported by the charity itself, raising funds. Was this... Sorry. Well, like I say, in Australia, the Sexpo organisation, a fabulous organisation, um, would give Clitorate a stand at their huge annual events, which were four days in their duration. And, um, you know, thousands of dollars were raised and then sent to Africa for this purpose. And, of course, this is just Australia, but this was done right around the world. So there, there, was, there was money being generated to educate, to stop it from happening, and to... Um, restore the damage done surgically. Were these operations only available to Raelians? No. In fact, I, I'm i not even sure if a Raelian ever had that operation. I, hmm. I, I, I don't know. But, um, it wasn't in any way uh, anything exclusive for Raelians. It was open to any woman 
that uh, had been abused in this way and um, via an education process, you know, being made aware of what had really happened to her and, and what could then be redone for her, it's um, we have this, this fabulous outcome. So, no, not just Raelians, it was anyone. Look, it's it's fascinating and and really amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than that. That's that's a, a fantastic cause that um, that the organisation has created and got behind. Um, I'd love to jump on to the uh, much talked about subject of cloning, which was uh, how I got onto got wind of the Raelian movement uh, in the first place. Um, so a while ago, I don't know exactly when it was, but a while ago, uh, there was a lot of, uh, talk and media and hype around the Raelian movement actually cloning humans. Um, what, what, what can you tell me about, did, did, did this happen and, and why? Um, we all, we've all heard about Dolly the sheep. Yep. So there we have a, a clone of an animal, and we, we now know that uh, it's become quite a business to go get your pet cloned and so forth. Not that it's bringing back your dog, it's bringing back a clone of your dog, which uh, would have different life experiences and therefore have but, but physically, genetically, it would be it would be your dog. Um, what's interesting, of course, if you're – if we get back to the messages, which were written in 1974 and 1975, it talks a lot about cloning. And indeed, it was cloning technology that the Elohim used to create us. So the Raelian movement has always been at the forefront of sort of the cloning debate, the cloning discussion, that it needs to be uh, nurtured, that it's, it's a relevant scientific pursuit, let's say. And uh, there was an announcement, it was quite some time ago now, I'd say it'd be at least 15 years ago, and uh, a Dr. Bridget Bosselier, who uh, certainly works in that field, started a company called CloneAid and uh, developed a piece of equipment that facilitated the cloning process, and she did make an announcement that she had cloned uh, a human being, that it was the deceased daughter of a couple, um, Eve, this person was called. And there was such a, a ruthless and frenzied attack on her, uh, both she and the movement stepped back from it. I know Dr. Bossilia personally, uh, I've known her for, for many years. I have no reason to suspect or believe that she fabricated the whole thing. In fact, I've often been um, heard to say that, you know, if indeed she did, it's only going to get better because it's one thing to present a so-called clone baby to the media, but if you present a walking, talking, functional, successful 20-year-old clone, that's really going to be something. And, uh, you know, we could well be on the the, the precipice of, of an even bigger adventure in this uh, story because uh, 
then no one could sort of claim that we were creating monsters and so forth. So there hasn't actually been any uh, proof um, dem- like provided to the outside of the Raelian world that this this actually took place? It's interesting, and again, depends on who you talk to, because uh, there were Raelians involved with Bridget in, in, in this work. Um, Bridget herself says that she took it upon herself to shield the parents of the child and indeed the child itself from what was fast becoming a, 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 a witch hunt, not just from a scientific perspective, but, I mean, you know, we're talking death threats and the whole thing about uh, people who just can't fathom. They think Frankenstein's monster. They you know, can't imagine a beautiful baby child. Um, again, I, I have no reason to doubt Bridget, and, and I only think it would be more fantastic because, of course, we can easily deduce whether this person is cloned or not. doesn't matter what their age is. It'd just be more fabulous to uh, have a mature person uh, presented one day. How, how would you deduce that it's a clone and not just a person? Well, you would then be unveiling the whole process and you would still have the, the genetic material of the deceased baby. Mm. So it's mm. a pure right. DNA test. Mm. Um, so I guess human cloning, uh, you know, there does bring up a lot of concerns. I'm sure you guys have heard it all. Um, but look, I don't, I don't fully understand cloning. I'm not a scientist. Um, but I imagine, um, look, a big part of the piece of this is the uh, consciousness, the soul, the spirit, the the whatever you want to call it, the the essence that makes me me. Um, uh, that I don't see how that could be replicated from uh, genetically uh, replicating or reprinting a, a human or growing a human body. It's very interesting if we. Imagine all the religious texts and sacred languages found on planet Earth. They all talk about a a creator who lives eternally. Depending on how we read those um, sacred texts or, or investigate those sacred languages, we start to discover that it's not uh, monotheistic. In fact, it's pluralistic. I mean, you know, Genesis itself says, let us make man in our image, not let me make man in my image. And uh, certainly sacred languages talk about a multitude of people coming from the stars or the heavens or the skies, etc. Now, these people, if we were to look at them by name, there's Lucifer and Satan and Yahweh and Gabriel and Michael and, you know, there's, there's of course, archangels and so forth. Um, and they're essentially eternal, but they're not eternal in some ethereal sense. As we know, biblical patriarchs, if we look at the Torah, lived for significantly longer lifespans than we do now. It mentions it in, in the Bible by name, by age, 700 years, 800 years, 900 and something years. And what Yahweh Elohim revealed to uh, Rael 
was that he lives eternally. That is, Yahweh lives eternally, but he doesn't live eternally in the same body. What happens is he lives for around about a thousand years, and that body is functioning at about the level when we're 20, so at its prime for the bulk of that thousand years. And then as the body starts to age rapidly towards the end of that thousand years, his consciousness, his mind, his his thoughts, his ideas, his essential being is uploaded to a computer. A DNA sample will be taken from the now aging body and a whole new body would be created that would be fully functional at the age of 20 and that is consciousness, his being, his identity would be then reloaded or downloaded back into the new body and he would live for another thousand years. So remember, these are people, but they're using science and technology. There is no sort of ethereal realm or spiritual realm. So they live eternally in successive bodies that are clones. The cloning is very relevant to eternal life. And, uh, you know, we'd be getting very close to that type of technology here. Clearly, you'd have to have very strong vetting criteria as to who gets to live another life and who may get to live eternally. Clearly not everyone could, but uh, I think that's adequately spelled out in most religions that it's a very, very, very select and good, pure few who get to live eternally forever. Uh, Most of us don't and won't. And um, that's why cloning is important to alienism because it's, it is the, the, the key essence of eternal life, which is talked a lot about in, uh, you know, religious circles. Hmm. I mean, you know, we have seen examples of animals being cloned, so we know it's possible. Um, we have science that is working very hard on artificial intelligence that is trying to create more or less or replicate consciousness. Um I can hunt. I personally, I can get my head around the idea of artificial intelligence becoming uh, self-aware, um, and we will actually have to invent uh, a whole new set of ethics around that. If if you can program pain and you can program self-awareness or, or whatever, I am. Um, I I can actually, I can actually understand that we might actually be screwing with something that requires some ethical considerations. Um, when dealing with artificial intelligence. What I can't really get my head around is the concept of uploading a person's consciousness or replicating a person's consciousness. I can't quite get my head around how that in any way would be possible other than replicating as close as we can to their habits, their speech patterns, their their intuitions and what uh, by, by... uh, you know, using uh, a system of odds and chance, uh, uh, yeah, what are the odds how they would react based on their personality? It would resemble some kind of consciousness, but I can't quite get my head around how a person's consciousness could be uploaded. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Look, it's 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 definitely being worked on as we speak. I mean, there's no uh, ambiguity about that. I... Uh, teach quite a bit uh, these sort of concepts um, with the work that I do. I um, 
am fascinated with psychology, I'd have to make the statement that neurologists are now shedding far more light on how the human brain works than psychologists have ever done. In fact, much of psychology has been proven to be woeful assumptions over the years and uh, quite incorrect on just about every level. But the neurologists are discovering, and I heard it put the other day, uh, it won't impress many, but uh, it it sings true to me that whichever way we carve up our character, that essence that makes me me, which is effectively just an expression of, of my social and environmental conditioning, the hereditary and the genetics plays a small part in that. At the end of the day, I'm just expressing all the input over the years that I've been alive. Whichever way we carve it up, and whatever our understanding of how neurons operate and how cells record information, it is just that, information. It is just information that operates within a particular neuronet. And that's what makes us so unique at the end of the day, because no two people have lived an exact life. Inputs tend to change, and therefore you have change in the sculpting of the neuronet, and you have a change in the information contained, and then you add perception filters to that. It's um, a very fluid space. So if we get back to the fact that all of this comes down to information, well, then the idea of uploading that information intact into a suitable uh, and obviously very complex uh, repository for a period of time while you prepare a body that is a genuine clone of the original, not as a baby, of course. You don't need to be born again and go through the nappy saga, but, you know, uh, a functional body at the age of 20 for that genetic expression, then you're just, you know, downloading that information back into a system that, um, you know, is designed for that information because it's all one and the same. Do you... So I guess, uh, do you believe, or do the Raelians believe, in the spirit, the soul? Well, it's a funny thing that because long before I ever heard of the Raelian movement, I, I picked up that if you if you had say eight of the biggest religions on planet Earth, their 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 texts on a table given that I started this journey long before you know, we had computers and phones, so everything was done by books, you'd start to pick up uh, you know, solid threads of, of, of you know, direct comparison between religions and which, even sacred languages for that matter. And if you take the words used in those religions to express what we now assume or have developed as a, a huge assumption what the spirit or the soul may be, it really just comes back to that which makes us breathe. So spirit is the Latin for breath, soul is the Greek for breath. You can go right through, you know, a whole host of other religions which talk about this aspect of life so it's not just talking about human life it's talking about life itself cellular life which is everything in the biosphere as as einstein says you can put all the pieces of a watch together 
put pieces of a watch in a paper bag and shake it for as long as you like, and you'll never, ever have a working watch, e.g. it's missing something. It's missing something that puts it all together in a meaningful way and winds it up and sets it to the right time. And I think that was just such an illuminated thing to say. And it's the same thing with life. You can put all the ingredients, all the chemicals and all the parts that make up life and you can put it in a Petri dish or some sort of environment and you still won't have life. You need to have that organizing aspect so for aliens that organizing aspect that and it fits so well if you just translate the word dna for spirit or breath that at the end of the day it's all about the dna that the 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 matter that makes me up is disorganized if it wasn't for the dna and that's the same for a blade of grass or a cow or a single cell amoeba it always comes down to the the, the DNA being that organizing aspect, which then takes all the parts which become the whole and create a living, breathing human being. At death, there is absolutely nothing unless the Elohim intervene because perhaps your life has been particularly meaningful or fabulous and they have decided that you warrant to live forever in heaven, as it's been so poetically uh, put um, but that's not because your soul leaves your body and goes to some place in an infinite cosmos it's because the Elohim then create your body as it would be at the age of 20 and upload your consciousness at the point of death into that new body living somewhere else in the cosmos on a planet just like ours uh, only far more advanced and uh, you know with such a select few um you know, incredible people, obviously a very harmonious place to live, but you can see where the confusion comes. So I, I, I had it put to me like this and someone showed me some documentation which really was pivotal for my journey that, you know, the Bible these days has been so hatcheted, there's been so much loaded into it that was never part of the original text at all, um, that in the original versions of uh, biblical text, it didn't give us two options, as in the good go to heaven and the bad go to hell. There were three options. A very select few would be recreated to live on the planet of Eternals. That's where Yahweh resides. That's currently where all the great prophets are residing and so forth, which is just a planet in our neck of the woods of the, the, the Milky Way's galaxy. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a handful of people who've been outrageously bad, probably many at the moment, uh, you know, when I look at the world's stage, I'm not wanting to be judgmental, but I just shake my head, would be recreated to be made aware of just how bad they have been. But the majority of us, having not done anything bad, but not actually done anything particularly good, would experience the sublime death which as the system shuts down, whether, you know, you fall off a building and hit the pavement or you die of old age in bed, you would have a euphoric sensation as certain chemicals are released by the brain into the system and that this would then, you know, be experienced as a sort of a brightness, a light, if you like. This would all be relevant to biochemical shifts in the brain And your last experience on Earth would be a very utopic, very 
blissful, euphoric experience before the system finally shuts down. And of course, at that point, from your perspective, it's as if you never were. And uh, I think there's a lot in that. Yeah, I mean, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, I-, I guess one... So there- there's a big aspect to the Raelian's aesthetic um, and the story that uh, is spiritual. The um, the logo, the kind of the famous Raelian logo is a swastika within the Star of David. Um, and yes, I'm well aware that the swastika is an ancient uh, symbol, not uh, referring to the Nazi appropriation. I know that is a constant question. Um, also, the Star of David is, yeah, we used um, the, the, the Jewish religion. Um, Rael goes by Maitreya Rael, a, a Buddhist reference. Um, and he is, is it the, uh, the, the last prophet? Is it the 40th prof- prophet, Rael? Which... Well, again, that would depend on who you spoke to. I've never actually heard Rael make any form of designation. Um, right. I'm not sure if anyone would really be able to answer that other than Yahweh himself but i i I guess sorry i'll just quickly finish but i I guess my point is with these other prophets so if he is if he is a prophet of of many prophets and the the last prophet as he proclaims for many prophets before and i think on the website and and discussions i've heard it it references jesus it references buddha uh, moses etc i mean all all these religions have a huge emphasis on the spirit they also have a huge emphasis on god i understand that um it's been said that that's a misinterpretation that god is actually the uh the people from above but why if there's been so many prophets, why would these prophets have got it so wrong? Why would, uh, because the, the thousands of years of misguided um, uh, efforts of, of believing in a God that doesn't exist, it seems that they weren't, the previous prophets weren't very good at profiting. You know, this, this, is, this is where I'm prepared to go out on a limb um, it's been 30 years and, you know, I've been harassed, I've been spat on, I've had bricks thrown at me. I it's really horrible. have no, you know, need to hide what it is I know. There's a difference between believing something and, and knowing something. And I had an interesting conversation with uh, a, a Christian man a while back. Uh, and when I say a while back, this year, and he was, and I were having a, a very, um, what can I say, um, exciting conversation. It was quite clear to me that he had, came with his full-on belief systems and he felt that I needed to be saved and that it was his job to save me, that indeed, you know, Rael and the messages that I was being seduced by, you know, demons, etc. But then I, 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 I asked him at one point to just do a simple investigation. Now, this is where, you know, you're going to need to be prepared to uh, perhaps have some, some vibrant commentary come your way once your podcast goes live. So we've all heard 
of the Genesis story, that on the first day God did this, and on the second day God did that, and on the third day God did something other. And we have the six days of creation, and he rested on the seventh. You're aware of that, Jack. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, it'd be it'd be hard not to be brought up in a you know Christian Judaic society and not be aware of of that story. And I said to him, "Let's have a look at the difference between modern Hebrew and ancient Hebrew, and then let's have a look at what was really said way back then in ancient Hebrew. Let's unpack that and have a look at what that." Few first few verses of the Bible um, really said, as opposed to what we've been led to believe it says. You know, there's a lot of, you know, enthusiastic religious people out there who actually haven't done much groundwork themselves. They've had their particular book, you know, delivered to them from the pulpit. They've been absorbed by all the you know, assumptions and the delivery of, you know, ideas, but, you know, haven't so much done the groundwork. So it is possible to come up with an investigation that says this. The word day, which we've presumed is a 24-hour period, in the ancient Hebrew, the way it was used was a reference to what's called a grand procession, which is the time it takes for our planet to do one lap around the centre of our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is roughly 2,160 years. So all those years ago, someone wrote that in the first 2,160 years, those that come from the sky, because that is a translation of the word Elohim, did this. And in the second 2,160 years, those that came from the sky did that. So that would then take the biblical creation story from a week to closer to 14,000 years, and it would remove this very much added later monotheistic Greek word God and use the original word that was written all those years ago in the ancient Hebrew, Elohim, which is a plural meaning those who come from the sky versus Eloha which is a singular meaning one who comes from the sky, and suddenly that that biblical creation story takes on a completely far more understandable nuance. It's, It's not magic, it's not spiritual, it's not omnipotent. It is people, those, coming from somewhere else in the cosmos over an incredibly long time scale set about to create because they could manipulate matter, life in all forms, however inspired by the creative genius of humanity, and then created us in their image. As simple as that, using cloning techniques. So just that one investigation of just a few verses of the Bible, which I can do from cover to cover of just about any religious books, suddenly puts it into perspective. What we've been taught, what we've been told, what certain systems would like to have us believe is exactly that. It's the belief system which is probably better for, you know, controlling a populace than liberating a humanity. But anyone can do this investigation. You just have to be sort of patient enough and brave enough and and go on your own investigative journey rather than, you know, 
worrying about offending your parents or your partner or, you know, the religion you've been hanging out with because I can tell you it's all there. There are some amazing – look at the Apocrypha. Go and have a look what it says in there, what was going on all those years ago. I mean, that's why I say they're science manuals. They're, they're, they're discussing scientific creation in detail. You don't have to substitute anything. It's just they're kind of in black and white. You might have to read between the lines a few times. You certainly have to take into account there's been deliberate distortions added just to keep us all in the dark. But the the, the, the big religions, it's time they all came together and realized they're all one and the same, same source, all part of the same journey. This nonsense of my God's right, your God's wrong this is more about divide and conquer than uh, bringing us all together. Do you believe these past prophets like Buddha and Jesus uh, and, and all that, do you think they were aware that God are men from the sky, aliens, and it's the followers that have completely misinterpreted this? Or do you think that the, their message has had a, they were not aware? Um, and even on that, why are we only now having a prophet that's bringing aliens into the picture? Why is that now being uh, explicitly kind of outlined? Look, uh, this is what makes, um, you know, perhaps Zachariah Sitchin or, or Eric Von Daniken or Gene Sendy, for that matter, um, so illuminated. If someone has the time to painstakingly look at all the various translation of the Torah, let's say, the Jewish text or the Old Testament, the First Testament, however we want to put it, part of the Bible now, um, and not to mention the, the Gospels, there is reference after reference after reference of clearly interaction between humanity and people who arrived on spaceships. You know, there are references of, you know, flying machines, there are references of ladders to heaven. What does an omnipotent God need with a ladder? What does an angel with wings sprouting out of their back need with a ladder? I don't know. But people, yeah, we need a ladder. We need to get up there. We're going to have to climb a ladder. You know, as it says in the Bible, in more than one place, you know, I met with Yahweh. He had the feet of a man, the hands of a man, a face of a man. We spoke as one man speaks to another. I mean, I've pointed this out to Christians who are standing on the street talking about Matthew, Luke, Tim and others, and I say, why don't you just turn to this page? Why don't you just read this bit? This bit's really interesting. Here it clearly shows you what God is. It's a person, you know, has feet, hands, a face, speaking like one man speaks to another. All of these references are rife in all religions. Go to the Vedas, look at the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata. All of these texts are rich with the most eloquently described interaction between people, people of Earth and highly advanced people from, you know, elsewhere in the cosmos. And you don't need to sort of twist or distort anything to, to pick that up. You just need to, to be careful of cognitive dissonance and perception filters that, you know, are uh, inflexible. But uh, it's there. We're, we, we live in extraordinary times because, Jack, we're now in those end of days. We're either going to make it or break it. We can – Enter the golden age and humanity can build this embassy and we can welcome the Elohim back and we can benefit from their scientific inheritance and enter the, 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 the galactic community. Or we can let these 
incredibly arrogant psychopaths who've wrested control of planet Earth from we the people, um, if we don't take back control, they will destroy everything. That's the, the, the nature of psychopathic mindset, and that is exactly what's happening, whether it's environmental destruction or it's all some horrific, cataclysmic nuclear war, <coughs> these people are perpetrating such a crime. Hmm. Yeah. So it's important. Um, what, is, what does the future hold uh, in, from the Raelian perspective? You know, what, what are the Raelian's goals? What do the Raelian's hope to achieve in guiding humanity? Or, or yeah, uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on yeah, amb- ambition, intention, and, and what the future will hold? I suppose in a nutshell... The Raelian mission is and always has been to get this message, the core message, the original books written to everyone. So everyone can at least have a chance at at, at being exposed to what we believe is the truth. That in of itself can be, you know, such a powerful experience for people. Coming with that, of course, is a philosophy that's just so suited to life on planet Earth and, you know, our our survival and, and continued development, the building of the embassy so the Elohim can return, that they are actually invited because at the moment nobody's actually inviting them. In fact, we do the complete opposite. You know, they, they launch the... Uh, the Air Force to go and uh, tactically engage them, which is just an absurdity. I mean, I, I, I just am shocked at the, the the ignorance and the naivety of the generals who actually, you know, launch a squadron of, of fighter planes onto a device that's clearly travelled superluminally across the cosmos. I mean, it's, it's just a... It's not valiant, it's not valour, it's, it's not bravery, it's just reveals the ignorance of the people in control. They're about as dumb as they come. And uh, so we need, <clears throat> and we're, we're absolutely defiant in, in bringing this information to every man, woman and child on the planet and uh, as a result building this embassy, inviting the Elohim back and um, entering the golden age. That is what it's all about. Fantastic. Um now, you guys don't believe in God or anything, but do, do you pray? Do you have any kind of uh, – uh, do you pray? Absolutely. I mean, we are telepathic beings. In fact, that's some of the other science which is, you know, being suppressed. I mean, all of us have a telepathic organ. Uh, you, you can find the, the best information on this subject from military websites because, of course, you know, the military like to come, come along and, and, and see if they can utilise any new discovery f- and weaponize it. They've usually got the budgets to give it a good go too, but we're all telepathic organs. Uh, have We're all telepathic beings and we have all had telepathic experiences. We all know what it feels like when you think of someone and, and a few minutes later that person rings. Hmm. basic example, but that's the whole nature of prayer. <clears throat> the nature of prayer is in my quiet time, I can telepathically engage with the Elohim because clearly they're telepathic beings. So they're hearing me at this point. They haven't chosen to answer me, but I'm not seeking an answer. 
I'm purely just connecting with them on a tele- telepathic level. So my, my prayers are more to do with, you know, <laughs> these days I'm apologizing for what a mess we're making of everything. I mean, you know, we live in a world where we could solve poverty today. <laughs> we could solve homelessness today. But these psychopaths that have wrested control and hijacked everything from us would rather pour all that money into a handful of nuclear submarines. I mean, you know, you, anyone who turns on the radio is aware that there are there's no hesitation to spend another billion dollars here or billion dollars there on military arms or military conquest, but we can't spend a few hundred million on on putting everyone into proper housing. This is this is a, a catastrophe. So you know, we we live in very interesting times, and and we hope because that's what it's come down to, that the good people of this earth, with the right information, will start to make the right choices, and um, somehow we can wrest our natural authority back from the psychopaths and actually um, save ourselves are there any really in political uh um ambitions absolutely i mean part of the philosophy is a um political idea called geniocracy that uh, as it eloquently puts in the messages you know we've had all sorts of people in power apart from the smart people that there are ways of deducing who is genuinely a whole balanced uh person, a person who can be indeed trusted to make the right decisions, not the right decisions for corporations, not the right decisions for certain vested interests, not the right decisions for those who are just manic about power and control for the sake of power and control, but the right decisions for all life on earth, not just human beings. But they've never been given a chance. And the reason they've never been given a chance is because a whole balanced human being, a a true genius... Um, well, they have limits on their behaviour, and in the current envi- environment, they they systematically get filters. You know, it's it's just the mad leading the mad. It's uh, it's uh, you know, we can see what politics attracts at the end of the day. A very particular type of person, uh, not good for humanity's survival, I might add. So, geniocracy is very much part of our philosophy. And um, we work quietly in the hope that perhaps one day we'd be able to create a geniocratic party and actually present some people who would be able to make the powerful decisions necessary for all life on planet Earth to survive and, 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 and you know, be. Uh, we will see where that heads, the ruthlessness of the current political framework and landscape we have to work with would suggest that that's going to be very difficult because politics has become bluntly ruthless and corrupt and criminal. And I don't mind saying it. You you know, anyone who reads the newspapers over the last 10 years, I mean, it's hardly a week goes by where some other, you know, criminality is not exposed with, uh, that's just our politicians, let alone, you know, on a global level, it just gets worse. Mm. Is a geniocracy, um, would that work within uh, our kind of, well, the West's democratic system, or is this like a complete overhaul, political overhaul? 
complete overhaul. So in a nutshell, the way it would work is for you to run for politics, you would have to have an IQ of a particular amount. So that would need to be measured. So in other words, if you're not cutting it on the intelligence level, don't even bother coming to the party. It's as simple as that. You're not wanted because you don't have the capacity. It's just like, you know, if you're six foot seven and weigh in at, you know, 130 kilos, no point in having an ambition to become a jockey. It's just not going to happen. You're just not the right makeup for being a jockey, you know, and that's not discriminatory. <laughs> that's just a fact. It's You're not going to get a ride. It's as simple as that. And we should have the simple, plain rules for those who profess to govern us that, you know, you've got to come with the smarts. You've got to come with the whole holistic fabric of what it means to be a complete human being, to be able to run a whole nation or indeed a world of human beings. And we clearly don't have that. So to run for politics, you would need to have a particular IQ. To vote for those who have that high IQ, you would have to have a particular IQ. Now, this is where I can already hear people scream. But it gets back to the jockey story. You know, not everyone gives a shit. Not everyone wants to vote. So why even bother inviting them? And for those who do want to vote, well, let's find someone who understands something about the governance of a country and understands the candidates and what they're offering and let that person vote as opposed to someone who might be more seduced to vote for someone because that someone bought them a few beers last time they were in town, which does happen. It might sound crude or crass, but I'm just speaking the truth here. And uh, I know people like that, so I know that it's a fact. And uh, I don't even know where I would sit on that spectrum, and I'm not particularly um, worried. I know I don't. I'm smart enough to know that I don't have the IQ to to govern. But if I don't have the IQ to vote, that suits me just fine. Because if the system was allowed to operate the way it is, I wouldn't have to worry because the people who are making the decisions would be able to make the most powerful decisions for the whole that would benefit us all. So there's nothing lost. There's a lot of evil geniuses, though. Um, well, I would dispute that. You know, I, I, I have, you know, this is a bit my field. I, I work with sort of uh, mental health and I, I work with psychology and I understand the phrase evil genius. But to be a genius means that your neuronet, your mind is working on such a high level that all the power centers of the brain, including compassion, empathy, understanding, love, sympathy, tolerance, etc., are all humming. The negative aspects are actually suppressed, fear, anger, and so forth. So you can't actually have an evil genius. You can have a smart person who's evil, but there's a big difference between smart and genius. Genius is a holistic element. So someone who just happens to be good at maths <laughs> and they go, oh, he's a maths genius – that's a distraction. He's just good at maths, you know, just like some people happen to have really good hand-eye coordination, even from the day they first picked up a ball. It's how their neuronet is formed. There's a genetic component to that, and then between zero and six, there's a shedding which sort of forms how that whole system works. So to be a genius, you are whole, and – being whole 
benevolence, love, tolerance, understanding, empathy, compassion, and so forth, the power centers of being human would be expressed. Evil really doesn't come to the party. Are there any people in the public sphere that uh, you would um, categorize as a genius with this definition? There certainly are. I wouldn't name them, and there's a number of reasons for that. We live in a very litigious environment, and I have to be somewhat careful of mentioning people because this day and age you just don't know how people are going to react and I'd hate to offend someone and then have some sort of you know liability or defamation lawsuit come my way so um, but yes there are innumerable people who who fit the bill unfortunately even though some of them have had attempts at getting into politics they usually get filtered out because at the end of the day you know, I read it well in a psychology paper, which I used to carry around with me because I was so impressed. A psychologist, this is peer-reviewed, I'm not going to mention names again because if I misquote someone, who knows what may happen, but loosely said, said, in the current environment, the psychopaths, the sociopaths and the authoritarians will always end up in the positions of control in any power matrix because they have no limits on their behaviour. Where the good people, the whole people who should be in those positions of power, have limits on their behaviour. So we eventually get to a point where the good people step back and go, you know what? I don't feel comfortable with this anymore. You, you guys take it on. Doesn't matter whether it's the local PNC or a government structure or corporate structure. In fact, for those listening, have a look around you. And I think you'll start to see this ring true. I know the more I look, the more I see this play out. We have a serious problem on planet Earth that the dysfunctionally <clears throat> inept are in positions of power and control, whether you're a general, whether you're a president, whether you're a CEO or the head of a school or goodness knows what, we have a, a serious deficit of capable people in powers of in positions of power, and the good people who are ready there to step up are being held back because it's just a part of their nature. They're ruthless, and they will stop at nothing, and they will not let go of their power. It has to be taken somehow. What, what do you put that all down to? Is it the systems we work in, like capitalism? Is it human nature? Is there a fundamental flaw in in uh, in the humans that the Elohim created? Why, why are the psychopaths in power? Very, very good. And I, I, I've been using this point for a couple of years now. If we have a look closely at animal structures and animal societies, if we have a look back in time over certain smaller cultures, more village-style societies, there were processes that would identify the psychopaths and have them marginalised, sort of keep them separate, you know, keep them fed, keep them, um, you know, sheltered, let's say, but would not let them get into to, to positions of power. Over time, these people have been managing to get together and uh, supporting each other, you know, those of the same ilk tend to uh, gravitate together and uh, rather cunningly and rather impressively have, have managed to create systems 
where they definitively filter out the good, whole, balanced people and uh, just continue to promote uh, the defective, sociopathic, psychopathic, uh, imbalanced people. So we kind of dropped the ball, and I'm wondering whether it's too late. We will all find out together, but uh, it is a truism. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yep, we're, we're in uh, some pretty pretty murky waters right now, hey, politically and on the global scale. Um, yeah, something's got to give. Something does have to give, and we know, or depending on how you look at it, we're, we're either living the most exciting times of humanity or the most depressing times of humanity, but either which way we're living history, and, and all of us who are alive and well today will witness that final outcome. I'm hoping it's going to be we're all watching the TV at this embassy that we know has been built, that has the extraterritorial rights that was built by, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be us, but is a genuine embassy for extraterrestrials <clears throat> and one day they go guess what we're interrupting this program because something just landed on that embassy we built and someone just came out and waved now that's a possibility that's a strong possibility let's hope it happens let's make it happen um you know with the anxiety that we all find ourselves in when you do pay attention to the news or you do just pay attention on what's happening globally. Um, do you, uh, you know, the Raelian movement has a lot of emphasis on happiness and love. Do you, um, you know, I'll let you go. Um, we've been ta talking a while, but I was wondering whether you might have any kind of message uh, of hope or of love or anything to, uh, to counter those uh, anxieties. Well, I have a twofold answer. I'm lying here in bed next to the most wonderful person on the planet, my, my lover and partner in life, staring at the TV, which is unplugged, no aerial, and hasn't been on for I don't know how long. That's your first step. Turn off the media. I'm not talking about selective online media like your podcast or other gems of information that are out there, but if it's mainstream media delivered to you via a television <clears throat> or a radio or even online, you can bet there's an agenda behind it. I think anyone who's got even three neurons to rub together would start to see that there's a, an, an absolute inherent bias and sensationalism and fear-mongering and deliberate attempt at keeping us all in this anxious state coming from mainstream media. So my first, you know, advice is turn off the media. That's the toxin, that's the poison right there. And then take a deep breath. One of the core aspects of, of Raelian philosophy is meditation. And no one needs to go and do a course. No one needs to, you know, practice in a particular position or have a special room. You know, these days you can download apps and things of that nature. Just find a comfortable seat. It only has to be a few minutes. It doesn't have to be hours. It could be just as you're going to sleep or when you wake up in the morning. But just breathe. Just breathe. Just listen. Just feel. Don't judge. Don't think. Don't analyze. Just be. And if we start to do that, and then when we go for a walk, instead of thinking about yesterday or worrying about tomorrow, 
just enjoy that blue sky above us or the, you know, the smell in the air or the warmth of the sun on your skin, that'll bring you back to the present. And, you know, Raelians strive to be in this space because this is life. This is where reality occurs and this is a healthy place to be. But we need to be, you know, vested and vigilant to be in this space, be in the present and be mindful uh, rather than be distracted and, uh, you know, get caught up in all the hysteria that's going on. Hmm. Great message. Um, Peter, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think some of the things that the Rayleigh movement has done are, are, are really great. I think the uh, whatever way can, can move people towards uh, happiness, fulfillment, uh, non-aggression, uh, non-violence, as, as, as you say, uh, I ha- have no problem with. Um, you know, it's a fascinating story. It's a, it's a pretty out there story for, for someone on the outside, I must admit. I've, I've got no idea, um, you know, uh, exactly, you know, wh- whether I believe the, the entirety to the story. Cause, uh, but, but that's, that's, that's on me, you know, that, that's my, that's my journey. Um, but I really appreciate, I really appreciate you were like, uh, expanding on it and being, uh, generous with your time when you've been, uh, also quite ill right now. <laughs> well, Jack, you've been a very pleasurable host and I really thank you for your time and for yourself and for anyone listening. You know, there's a lot of, of sensational content on dot. Org. That's R-A-E-L dot org. You'll notice there's a, a number of web pages relevant to um, the Raelian movement. Paradism.org comes to mind. And uh, if people investigate those web platforms, they can download all the books we've discussed for free. There's all the contacts for geneocracy. There's everything to do with cloning. There's everything to do with the philosophies that we've been discussing. There's the meditation book there. It's all downloadable for free. Um, a lot of content. So if this has inspired anyone, rail.org will get you going. Great. Um, thank you so much. And, uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Great. Take, take, take care. It's been a pleasure, Jack. Thanks so much. Oh.